It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to see you all. Uh, I am feeling better. My family's feeling pretty good. Thank you for all of you guys who reached out and prayed for us. We had COVID over Christmas. Merry Christmas. Wonderful. Um, anyways, we're, we're better now. I'm very grateful. I want to give you guys a quick update for those of you that are on our church email. Uh, you're probably aware of Brenton and Leon's situation. On Friday night, Leon had a seizure that lasted about 10 minutes. They were rushed in an ambulance to the hospital, and then from there, they were, um, they were diagnosed with some kind of infection in Leon, but they weren't able to figure it out, and so they flew Brenton and Leon in the helicopter to Hershey. Uh, right now, Leon's vitals are, are fine, and I actually just got a text that <clears throat> uh, they've taken the breathing tube out of him, and so he's responding well right now. They're not, he's been through a gamut of, of tests um, this, uh, this weekend, and they're not exactly sure uh, what's going on. He's been on antibiotics for a while, so they don't know if it's uh, fixing uh, the, the infection or if the infection was causing the seizures. And an MRI, there's a little spot on um, his brain. The doctors are un- unsure if there's anything wrong with that. They said, Probably this could have been something he had. It could be a tumor or a cyst that he had for his entire life and never knew how. They're just they're trying to figure stuff out right now. The good news is, is that Leon's vitals are, are stable and he seems to be doing good. So what we need to pray for this morning, we're going to take a minute to do it, is pray for clarity, all right? Bree is staying with a friend up in Hershey and going to visit as she can. Um, and the kids are with um, Grandma and Grandpa. So will you just pray with me uh, for, for a minute this morning as we lift them up in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you and um, we trust you, God. We know that you're a good God, that you love Leon more than any of us ever could, Lord. And uh, we recognize that there's something um, broken, something's happened, Lord. And, and we confess that you're the healer, God. You know uh, what, exactly what's going on and, and you can fix that, Lord. So we ask that you would come, that you would heal his body, that you would minister to him that you give doctors and nurses wisdom as they look at him, God, and I pray most of all that they'd be able to find the source of the seizure, Lord. We pray for Brenton and Bree, God, that you would just pour out your heart, that you would give them peace, Lord, be with their their parents, the grandparents, their brothers and sisters, just um, everyone involved, God, I pray that just for peace in the midst of that. Lord, I pray that, and I know that Brenton and Bree have been clinging to you, Jesus. I thank you that you're comforting them. Continue to be with them. Uh, we pray for clarity and communication with doctors and nurses, Lord. And I just pray by the end of the day, we would have some clarity, that they would have some clarity on what exactly um, is going on and be able to treat it, Lord. We ask um, these things of you in your name. Amen. All right, so please, guys, just continue to pray for them. As we have updates and information, if you're on our email list, you'll, 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 we'll give you updates as, as we know um, more. Um, Brenton had asked for everyone to pray and is grateful that everyone was praying, so continue to do that. Um, before, again, it's been quite a week, before I get to my sermon part, I did want to address um, what happened this week at the Capitol building, I think... Um, yeah, I, I'm a firm believer in, in keeping politics out of the pulpit, but I also want to recognize uh, what happened was was different than probably what anyone's ever experienced in their lifetime. And so um, as I prayed for us as a church family and as I prayed for our church, I felt like um, the Lord reminded me of 1 Timothy <clears throat> chapter 1, uh, chapter 2, sorry if I can get there, 1 Timothy 2. I feel like this was what God said um, to us, and it was a good reminder for us, and I feel like um, 
as Peter read this morning, overarching thing that Jesus would call us to do is let not our hearts be troubled. Um, for ultimately, he's on the throne, and we're about the kingdom of God, not specifically our kingdom or anyone else's kingdom. We have brothers and sisters who worship under different flags all throughout the world, and our primary concern is the kingdom of God. And even though things looked really bad this week, Jesus still remains on the throne. And this is our call to respond to our politics, respond to what's going on in our nation. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and, and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life, gave his life as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Guys, our call as, as followers of, G, of Jesus in this time is to pray. Pray for our nation's leaders, whether left or right, it doesn't matter. Our call is to pray for our leaders. Our call is, is to, to be peaceful, to, be, to uh, be dignified. And I would just call us as a church family, this is a prime opportunity for us to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim that Jesus is on the throne, left or right. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on or in the middle. Like it, it, it doesn't matter. Our primary concern is to be about Jesus. And the church should be a place where we demonstrate what it looks like to be unified with differing opinions. I know there's people from all different political spectrums that, that come to our church, and everyone is welcome here. And I would just affirm and say that this is an opportunity for the church to say this is what it looks like to be united in Christ. Our primary concern is the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of the United States. So will you, with me this morning, be faithful to do what chapter 2 calls us to do? Will you bow your heads in prayer with me as we pray for all people and for our leaders? Heavenly Father, I come before you, and I just confess, God, that, um, yeah, these are different times in our nation than I've ever seen. Politically, we're incredibly divided, and yet, Jesus, you are still on the throne. And so, um, as the early church had to sit under Nero and other um, leaders that were very harmful to them, your call was still for them to pray for them. And so, Jesus, our call is to pray for our leaders, our senators, our congresspeople, our president, our incoming president. Lord, we pray for all of them. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would soften their hearts, uh, that the rhetoric would, would die down, God, that, that people would begin to um, honor one another and love each other as, as you've called them to. Lord, I pray for us as a church family that we would lead by example, that we would be a church that um, cares more about you, Jesus, cares about the kingdom of God rather than the politics of the United States. Father, I pray that we would be people that are dignified in the midst of people asking lots of questions and feeling unrest in their hearts and lots of emotions that are ranging all over the place. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be able to point people to Jesus in the midst of this what seems like significant, but in the grand scheme of things, very insignificant week, considering people's eternal destinies, I pray that we would keep that in perspective. Like Paul and the apostles, Jesus, that we would hold fast to an eternal perspective. That we would recognize that daily, people's eternal destinies hang in the balance. And we have an opportunity to proclaim truth to them, to proclaim Jesus to them. Help us to be faithful to do that. Help us to be faithful about the kingdom of God. 
and not be distracted by the kingdoms of men. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. It's a lot to get started. We okay? Everyone all right? All right, this morning we are starting a new series, and I know for some of you that have been in church for a while, you may be surprised, but we are going through the book of Leviticus, all right? I'm really excited about it. I know for those of you guys that came to the generational meetings, one of the things I communicated to you was, hey, we're going to look, we're going to take this year, and we're going to look at the first third of the year. We're going to talk about what does it look like to love God, the second third, what does it look like to love people, and the last third, what does it look like to make disciples? That's, that's my heartbeat. That's, that's what we're about, and so everything for this first kind of third of the year, we're going to focus on what does it look like to love God. And in order to love God, we need to know who he is. We need to know his character and his nature. And so we, as a staff, took time and we prayed and we thought, what better way to do that than to look at the book of Leviticus, right? Um, and I know at first you may, you may be thinking, all right, uh, what are you doing, Joel? Like, the, like, I've been in church a minute, and that's that book that I want to give up on my reading plan every year when I get to Leviticus. So many rules, like so many weird things in there. Like, are you sure you want to go through Leviticus? Yes, most definitely I do. If you follow along faithfully for the next eight weeks with us, you're going to be like, I can't believe that was in the Bible. Like, that is some weird stuff. Like, if you look like at body fluids, like skin disease, all that kind of stuff is talked about in the book of Leviticus. And it seems really weird. Like, I'm just going to be honest with you. It, is, it seems weird, but when we look at it in context, hopefully you're going to understand. Hopefully it's going to make sense to you. Hopefully you'll be able to Bible nerd a little bit with me on this. But I'm, I'm really excited to, to look at it. All right, but first, let me tell you the, the major reason why we're looking at Leviticus for eight weeks is because we're focusing on the overarching theme in Leviticus, and that is this. God is holy. God is holy. If there's nothing else you take away for the next eight weeks, then this. This is the one thing. God is holy. That is what he's communicating to his people. We are going to see over and over again, God is holy. So we're going to look at what, is, what does it mean that God is holy? What does that look like? Like, we're going to unpack it, but I want you to understand this is the overarching theme that God is is holy, and that's what he's communicating to his people. All right, so, but in order to understand how do we get, like, this idea that God is holy, how do we get Leviticus? It's the third book of the Bible. The first five books are often referred to as the Pentateuch. So you have Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus. So it's the third book. So we're, we're going to be back at the beginning of your Bibles. If you want to actually start to turn there, you can. I'm actually, the passage that I'm going to have us read together is going to be from Exodus this morning, but you can go ahead and start to turn to the front. I'll be all over. I'm going to be in Genesis some also, okay? But how did we get to Leviticus? How do we get this book? If you, if you read ahead at all, like, how do we get this book with all these rules and regulations, these priests, and like, what is going on? And in, in order for us to understand what's going on and what God is communicating to his people, to us today, I think we just need to be faithful and take some time to kind of look at the historical context, look at how did we get to this book with all these weird things about, you know, skin diseases and body fluids. Like, how do, how do we get here? All right, so that, that's what I'm going to do. Really quickly, I want us to catch up. So hopefully most of you started a new Bible reading plan for the year, and a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them will start in Genesis chapter 1. So that's where I'm going to start this morning, in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, if you want to follow along, I'm going to be in Genesis a little bit. I'm going to be flipping through several um, texts. All right, so if you started in Genesis 1, this year, if you look at the beginning of, of the Bible, the first chapter, the first verse, in the beginning, we see that God created, all right? That, that is the main thing. One of the biggest things that, that God wants to communicate with his people is that he is 
the creator, right? So again, this is all going to be about God's character and nature. And one of the first things that God is communicating to his people as he's given us his word is that he is the creator. And we see all throughout the first chapter of Genesis, God talks about all the things that he creates. And then we get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and it says this in 26 and 27. He says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on earth. All right? So what I want us to understand, number one, God creates. He speaks things into existence. He is the creator. He speaks it, he breathes it out, and it comes to life. That is the God we serve. That that is the God that, that we talk about. He speaks, and things come to life. Things that weren't suddenly are, all right? And then he comes, he comes along and he says, I'm going to create man. I'm going to create men and women, and I'm going to create them in my image. And that simply means that something about you, something about me reflects the image of God, all right? So think about that. Something about you, when God created you, when he created mankind, it was meant to reflect him in some way. And the point of that is that so we would look at each other and be like, you know what? God is amazing. He created you. He created you. He created me. Like, this is, this is amazing. We're supposed to look at each other, and there's supposed to be a reflection of God, and it's supposed to point us towards God. That is the purpose of him creating us in his image, right? And so he does that, and it's this good thing. God calls it good. And then if you're familiar with the story in Genesis chapter 3, God creates man, he creates him in his image, he gives them this freedom, this freedom to choose. Are they going to follow God or are they not going to follow him? This choice, are they going to love God or are they not going to love him? And we see quickly, it seems like the fall in chapter 3 happens where Adam and Eve, they choose to rebel, to disobey God. I'm not going to get into the details, but they, they rebel against God. That's the, that's the core thing. And what happens then is because they rebel against God, sin enters into the world. This uncleanness, right? This, this brokenness enters into the world because of their rebellion against God. And what God does then is he removes them from the garden. You see, God walks with them in the garden. His presence is there with them. And because of their sin, he removes them from the garden, right? And we see very quickly that sin begins to have an effect on a lot of people, and it's, it's really bad. Uh, Adam and Eve, they have a son, two sons, Cain and Abel, right? And so, so again, just a couple chapters later, not through uh, much time, you have people rebelling against God, and then you have two sons and a brother, Cain, actually murders Abel out of jealousy. That's how quickly things spiral downwards. And even worse than that, if you, if you follow along, sin begins to affect everything. It affects our reflection of God. Here we are supposed, supposed to point towards God, Right, be image bearers of God, and instead, we're we're reflecting sin a lot more. And in chapter six in Genesis, verse five, it says this: The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about how bad that is. God goes from creating this good and perfect uh, place in the Garden of Eden, and then pretty quickly, I mean, a couple chapters later, suddenly. 
Everything that man wants to do is wicked. And so this is the state that we're in. Sin has infected everything. And so God, he finds one man who's willing to follow him. Noah calls him to build the ark, floods the earth. And it's kind of this almost do-over, right? And as, as the earth is populated again, they start over. Man is still, sin is still deeply affecting them. And yet God still continues to pursue man. Right? He's not like, I'm just done. He continues to pursue them. And he finds this man named Abram, who's this nomadic pagan guy who's not even really worshiping God, but he pursues him, and Abram becomes Abraham, who obeys God. And instead of rebelling against God, he actually follows God. He goes with him. God tells him to go, he goes. Right? And what God does with that, he honors that and sets up this covenant with Abraham. And that simply means this agreement that, that he says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and through you the whole world is going to be blessed. You're, you're, through you is going to be a great nation, and through that nation I'm going to bless the whole world. And so Abraham then has sons in his old age, which is a miracle in itself, and his sons have sons, and a couple of generations happen. You go through the whole book of Genesis, and you get to the end of Genesis, and you see God continually redeeming and saving his people, and eventually he saves them from a famine at the end of Genesis, and that's, that's, that's where they are at the end of the book. And they're in Egypt, saved. But that comfort and, and, and being there eventually turns into slavery. For them. So you have this nomadic people with no home, no land, but God is going to establish them as a nation. And here they are, a nation of slaves, really more of a nomadic tribe than a, than a nation, even with some customs. And, and, and God says, all right, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to call you out. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to be faithful to fulfill my promise. And that brings me to Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So if you're able to, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? <clears throat> Now Moses, keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, and out of the midst of the bush he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. That's God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. So here are God's nomadic people, enslaved now, in Egypt. And if you're familiar with the story of Moses, if you watch Prince of Egypt or anything like that, right? You, you know the story that God saves Moses in a basket. He redeemed, raised in Pharaoh's court, all this stuff, right? He, and yet God's people are in silence. Like he is not interacting with them. They're, they're just there in slavery in Egypt. And the first thing that God does is he pursues and raises up a leader. And the first thing that God is going to say to that leader as he calls him out, he's going to identify himself, tell him who he is, and he's going to say, I'm holy. The ground at which I am speaking to you from is holy ground. It's incredibly important. Moses doesn't even really know who God is, even though as he's talking to him, pursuing him, he has to identify himself, and then he has to tell Moses, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. And God's going to raise up Moses as a leader, and I think most of you are familiar with the, the ten plagues, and then God bringing his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land. But before they get to the promised land, they're going to have to go through the wilderness. 
And in the wilderness, God is going to establish them as his covenant, this covenant nation people. He's going to establish them. And so we see Exodus is telling us the story of how they leave. So we have Genesis building up to Exodus. Exodus tells us how they leave. And God in Exodus talks about how he establishes the the tabernacle, his presence in in their midst, which we're going to talk about some. And then finally we have Leviticus. And Leviticus tells us all about who God is. God needs to teach his people. He needs to tell his people, this is who I am. I need you to know who I am as your God. Let me communicate to you who I am. His people don't know him. His people don't know him. So Leviticus is going to be a book about God explaining to his people who he is and how they should worship him. How they should worship him. And the main thing that he is going to communicate to his people is that he is holy. And the question that Leviticus is wrestling with and the question that Leviticus is answering is this. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful, unholy people? How can a holy, perfect, flawless God put himself right there in the middle and dwell? How can his presence dwell in the midst of an unclean, sinful, unholy people? That's what Leviticus is dealing with. It's not not about God's people. It's about who God is. Is the people that the mistake that people make when they think about Leviticus or read through it as as all these rules is that they read Leviticus and they think the the book is about God's people more than it's about God. But the book is about God. Remember back to Genesis. God tells us that we are created in his image. Sin messes up that image. And so as God's people, they should continue to reflect God. The way that they live and worship should reflect God. God, understand this, guys. As a church, we need to understand that how we live and worship reflects who or what we worship. How we live and worship reflects who or what we worship. I'll say it one more time. How we live and worship reflects who or what we worship. God is establishing this holy covenant people that are going to follow him, that are going to worship him, and, and it's important that they reflect who he is to the nations. God's desire from creating us in his image is that we look at each other and say, God is awesome. And God's doing the same thing. It's not that Israel is awesome, that th- these people are going to be awesome. It's that God is awesome, and he's worked through this nomadic tribe of nobodies, and he's redeeming them and making them great so that people are drawn to himself. That, that's what God is, is doing here. And the question we have to ask ourselves the question that was relevant to them is God establishes them as a people. As followers of Jesus today, the truth still remains true. The way that we live and worship reflects what or who we worship. And so the question we wrestle with this morning, we have to wrestle with as we look at Leviticus, is, is the way that we live, the way that we worship, does it reflect Jesus? Does the way that we live, does the way that we worship, does it reflect Jesus, does it reflect our God? You see, God in Exodus, he sets up the tabernacle, and this is essentially God's mobile temple, right? And and as they go through the wilderness, God, they're going to move the tabernacle. God's going to go with them. But this is God's dwelling place, and it is smack dab right in the middle of the camp, right in the middle of all of God's people surrounding him. God's presence is there at the center. And that's reflective for them, but that should be for us too. Is the gospel of Jesus, is it at the center of our lives? Now, Remember back to Genesis? I said that Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. 
And God walked with them. He dwelt with them in the garden. And, and recognize what is really happening is that God, Adam and Eve are removed from God's presence. All right, they're removed from God's presence. He doesn't walk with them like, like he did in the garden, right? And, and here, yet here, what God is doing is something incredibly significant. God and the tabernacle is going to put his presence with his people. He is going to, the, for the first time in like a thousand years, he's going to actually dwell with his people. His presence is going to be at the center of everything in their lives. I mean, this is incredible, right? Does God owe them his presence? Does he owe us his presence? No, by no means at all. He doesn't owe them anything. Instead, he chooses to pursue them. He chooses to put his presence, he chooses to redeem it and put his presence right there in the center of the camp. God is doing something incredibly special here with Israel. And the question is, why? Why does he choose to do that? Why, why after people have broken the covenant when all that they choose to do is evil over and over again, they rebel against God, why does he do that? That's just who he is. That's just his character and nature. He loves his people. He pursues relationship. He restores and reconciles. He is holy. He is other. He is different. It is who God is. The overarching theme of Leviticus is that God is holy. He desires to be with, to dwell with, to be in relationship with his people. The hard thing is holiness is a difficult concept for us to grasp. I think if you grew up in church, you heard this term all the time, holy, right? If you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard the Justin Bieber song, holy, okay? Like we know, we know this word, but we don't know what it actually means. Like, what does holiness actually mean? So synonyms for, for holy are like sacred, set apart, flawless, perfect. These, these are all uh, synonyms for, for holy. This is what it means without any flaw. It's, it's, it's difficult for us to look at perfect things without flaw, things that are set apart. I mean, there's not a lot of examples from it in society. Well, as I was trying to think about it, I'm like, what are things that we think are perfect? Like, we buy a brand new car off a car lot. I haven't done this, but it sounds amazing. Buy a brand new car off a car lot. It's perfect, right? I mean, the wheels are all shiny. It's like shiny new car. Right? It's perfect. It's holy. And as soon as you drive it off the lot, you lose all your value, right? I mean, that's, that's what happens. But it becomes imperfect. As soon as it hits the road or gets a scratch, your kid, you know, with their bike, it goes alongside of it. It becomes flawed, it's no longer holy. We don't have a lot of holy things. If you're a baseball fan, maybe think of this. You ever um, heard of a, a perfect game? Like that means that the pitcher, basically there's no hits, no one gets on base. It's perfect. And it can be perfect all the way for nine innings until the bottom of the ninth. It's perfect. But if one person gets a hit and gets on base, it's no longer perfect. It's ruined. But it's like if God was the pitcher, he just strikes everybody out for eternity, just all day, right? That's like his perfect game. (coughs) Understand, holiness is something that's so other. It's so different for us to to wrap our minds around that we can't even think of many perfect things in life. I think probably, so to understand this, you have something perfect, you have this car or, or, or whatever, like think of in terms of things for us. And how does it, how do you use it, how does it function without it becoming flawed? Or how, how does it, how does it, like, how do you drive a brand new car off the lot and it never lose value? How do you, how do you pitch a perfect game forever and ever and ever? Like, we can't do 
these, how, do, how does that work, right? Because as soon as you drive that car off the lot, it loses its value. It's no longer perfect. And this is what we need to understand about God's holiness. As God's presence dwells, <clears throat> the unholiness of man, the flawedness, the sinfulness of man does not affect God's holiness. <coughs> Excuse me. It doesn't suddenly make him unholy. Right? I, I think that probably one of the best ways to think about holiness, the, the best, if I, can, if I can use this illustration, if you think about light and darkness, this is referred to biblically quite a bit, right? If you think about light and, and darkness, if you have a light, right, it pushes back the darkness, right? I got a little illustration for us, all right? So if we can kill the lights real quick, all right? We shut them all off, turn them all the way off, all the way off dark for a second. All right, we still have some light in here, but just for imagine, if I turn on the light, it pushes back the darkness, right? No amount of darkness is suddenly going to consume this light. Like the light pushes back the darkness. The darkness is destroyed. It's pushed back on and on. Like no amount of darkness consumes it. This is like God's holiness. His presence is here. It pushes back the uncleanliness, the sinfulness, the darkness. It consumes it. It destroys it. And so imagine you have the presence of God dwelling in the midst of unclean, unholy people. What does it do? It pushes back that sinfulness, that darkness. It consumes it. And so what we're going to see in the text at, at times is that the presence of God is here and someone enters into the presence of God. Maybe it's the high priest who's not ceremonially clean, he hasn't obeyed God and followed all the things, he has some kind of hidden sin, he's not ceremonially clean, and he enters into the presence of God, and what happens? He dies, drops dead. Is it because God is wrathful and angry? No, it's because he's pure and holy, and as the darkness approaches the light, it is consumed. It is just his nature. And so the unclean thing cannot make the, the, the perfect and holy, flawless thing unclean clean. It remains perfect, holy, flawless. This, it, it doesn't stop shining. It doesn't stop consuming the sin or the darkness as it comes through. It consumes it. It destroys it. And so what God is doing is he's taking his, his holiness and he's going to dwell in the midst of his people. And what he's going to do in Leviticus is say, listen, this is how I'm going to live with you so you don't get consumed like the darkness, so you don't get eaten up, so you don't get destroyed. That's my heart for you is that I could dwell with you, but I can't change who I am as God. This is just who I am. I consume sinfulness and uncleanliness and it pushes back all this stuff. And so God is teaching his people, this is who I am. I'm holy. And if you come near, if you come too close with the sinfulness, the uncleanliness, you're going to be consumed. Oftentimes, you know, we talk about purification in the Old Testament and we use, um, <clears throat> they talk about, fire and how it refines things. God is often referred to as an all-consuming fire because it purifies. The idea is that fire purifies, it cleanses, and it makes clean. And that's, that's essentially what, what as, as uncleanliness approaches holiness, it's consumed, it's purified. Think about getting too close to a fire and getting burned up consumed because you are not fire, right? But if a lot of light shines, we push back the darkness, Right? And so here's the good news of the gospel. We can, we can turn on the lights and I'll turn this one off. Good news of the gospel 
is this, is that even though God is like that, he is holy and perfect, and that he is, he is an all-consuming fire, and that as uncleanliness approaches him, it's, it's consumed, his heart for us is still to dwell with us. In, in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12, he says this, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you, and, you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And what what God is saying here is my desire is to walk with you again. My desire is to dwell with you. And what this is doing is foreshadowing Jesus. Make no mistake, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same, both holy. Both holy. God's desire is to dwell with his people. And and, and when he is, you see in the Old Testament, when his holiness is there and his people just refuse refuse to approach him and they just sin more and, and run from God, he still continues to pursue him so much so that eventually he sends his son Jesus, the good news of the gospel, that holiness would come down and dwell with us, that he would walk amongst his creation. And look, it's the same thing. When Jesus heals the leper, Jesus doesn't become unclean. The leper is cleansed. When Jesus touches the lame, he doesn't become crippled. The lame person begins to walk. The blind begin to see because he's holy. And these people have had an encounter with the holy God, and he purifies and cleanses them. It's the same God, Old Testament, New Testament, who loves his people and wants to pursue his people, be in relationship and reconcile and redeem them. It's the same God with you today. But the beauty of the New Testament, the beauty of what Christ does to the cross as he goes and pays for the atoning sacrifice for our sin is that he sends his spirit, his Holy Spirit, to come and dwell inside of you. It's like the center of the camp is not enough. I want to be in relationship so much with you. I'm going to come and dwell inside of you. For those of you that follow Jesus, that is the truth of the gospel. That is our hope today. That God made a way from a camp where people were consumed when they got too close to because of what Christ did on the cross that his Holy Spirit could dwell in us. And our heart today needs to be this, is that we cry out to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, help my life and my worship reflect Jesus. Help my life and my worship reflect reflect who you are. I'm going to call Peter and the worship team forward and let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're holy, God. Help us to understand it. It's such a difficult concept. We come up with illustrations and talk about ideas, but at the end of the day, your holiness is it's just so other. It's so other, it's so different, so perfect and pure. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come. We thank you that you've invited us into your holiness, that you've invited us into your holy grace, God. We thank you that, Holy Spirit, you sanctify us. We have been sanctified, we are being sanctified, and we will be fully sanctified. We thank you, God, that we're no longer wandering in the wilderness in tents, God, but we have your presence inside of us. Help our lives and our worship to reflect you, Jesus. In your name we pray.